Good evening, everyone. I'm Sandra Hebron, and I have the pleasure of talking to Gemma a little bit more about the project that is I Am Dora, and I think specifically perhaps a little bit more about tonight's event and the publication that goes with it, and some of the choices that she made in putting everything together. Um, not everyone will have seen the publication yet, um, I don't think, but in that, you speak very frankly about the overdose that you took when you were 15 and the period of hospitalisation that followed it. And I know that when you were thinking about this edition of I Am Dora, you were keen to get hold of your medical records from that time. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to access those records and what happened when you tried to do that? Um, because this event was on PLATH, um the the way that I experienced Path when I was when I first started reading her was sort of straight after that period of hospitalisation and um, so I think of the Belgia as very much linked to that period so it seemed really it seemed important to talk about that um, and when I read the Belgia again for the second only for the second time recently I was like sort of struck by how much. Um, time was given to her sort of inner world thinking about what people were saying about her mm. um, and doctors reactions to what she'd done or how she was behaving or how she felt it was it wasn't just about how she felt inwardly it was more how she seemed to the outside world mm. um, so it made sense to me to to try and find out what was said about me um, and I thought it would be interesting to see whether that had maybe changed since the you know that period or or whether that was, you know, kind of a constant of feeling misunderstood or being actually being misunderstood. Um, so when me and Claire started working on the publication, I uh, very quickly sort of wrote, I phoned the hospital and they told me that I had to write to them. Um, I wrote to them and quite soon afterwards they told me that the records had been destroyed. So obviously I couldn't do that. So the whole project changed. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where we are. And what did it feel like to find that your records had been destroyed? Well, it sort of changed. So at the beginning, I felt really sort of, I felt really sad about this and very, um, a bit wounded that that period had been wiped away mm. officially. Um, but then it became a good thing almost because um, I was able to remember in a different way. Um, and try and work on the project in a, in a completely different way which was about the things that I remembered and also to work through plus work in a different way as well in, in a non-factual way. Because you think that having someone else's report of you at that time would have, would have potentially um, influenced where you took this project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it would have been distracting in fact um, at the time, I thought that was very important. Um, but actually, what was important was what I remembered and what I had experienced. Um, so, yeah, I think that it, it was important that there was an absence and there was a space to, to remember something. With. So would you see then a link between that process of remembering and the creative process in relation to, to working on Dora this time? Can you tell us a little bit more about how how you, because I think the next stage was that you then started to interrogate some of Plath's work. How did you do that? What, what did you set out to do? So the publication is, there's, there's not, you, 
you know, there's not a lot of content in the publication. And the reason why that is is because of this absence that we had with the records. So um, one of the most important things about Dora and the publication is that I work really closely with my friend Claire, um, who designs it. And we talk a lot. You know, we talk a lot more than you'll see in the publication. Um, and, you know, Claire sort of describes herself not just as a designer, but as an interpreter of like what, what I tell her. And that can only really happen as, as friends, I think. We, the closeness is really important. Um, so what we did was we took as the, the, the main focus the fact that there were no records. Mm. Um, and we took absence as the, the main inspiration of it. And one of the, the key pieces of the publication is um, Lady Lazarus, the poem. And to begin with, I had marked up, in much the same way as I did when we first started talking about the publication, I, I, I took the bell jar and made a list of things that were exactly like my story. So they were, they were, they were facts. Um, and in much the same way with Lady Lazarus, I sort of underlined all the bits which I wanted, I, I felt were related to me. And actually, when Claire looked at it, she ended up taking all the bits that I hadn't underlined out. Mm. So we actually you know, kind of embrace the, the stuff that wasn't there. Um, and in that process, what we found, or what I noticed, when I read it back now, is that I've actually erased a lot of Plath's story in that. Um, and a lot of Plath's story that I find uncomfortable. Um, and I talk about this a little bit in the notes, but her rage. Mm. Um, and that's absolutely her rage, it's not mine. And I thought it was interesting, even though that wasn't what I was trying to do, I wasn't trying to cross Plath out, but that's actually what ended up happening. Mm. And that's interesting then when we think about Sandra Lahir's film, and we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that later, but I think one of the striking things for me the first time I saw Hello Lady Lazarus was, it, it, that was the first time I'd heard Sylvia Plath's voice. And, <coughs> I, and I read into that so much, um, anger in yeah. her voice. Absolutely. And I think that it that when I first heard that myself, um, I think it was quite unnerving because when you read the, the, the words on the page, I think we talked about this yesterday and you have this image of Plath kind of in her kitchen completely mm. um, kind of at, at her very end and really desperately writing these words for people to read. and. Um, not as this strong person trying to live mm. um, and trying to get her story across, which is actually what you really do get with her voice. Mm. Um, so I think that absolutely was so important in the choice of film, and that's actually what moves me the, mm. the most. Yeah, and I, I find that too, I think reading the words on the page, you know, I mean, partly because it's impossible to do that without the well, for me, I find it hard to do that without the sort of mythology that's around her, but also, and it's interesting, you know, tonight, of course, we started talking about something that's in your own kind of biography, that's in your history. <coughs> but one of the things it seems with Plath is that it's always very difficult to escape from her, you know, kind of personal history. And I think it's, you know, Jacqueline Rose, when she writes about Sylvia Plath, says it's almost impossible not to write a biography of Plath and if you ask people about Plath, if they don't know anything else, they probably know that she killed herself and that she was married to Ted Hughes. Um, how does that, I mean, I Am Dora is a project that you inscribe yourself 
in very fully. There's a lot of you in there and a lot of your um, biography. How do you, I mean, you've chosen to do that, of course, but do you have any um, kind of anxieties or, you know, how do you feel about doing that? It might seem strange to say yes, because I do do it. But um, yeah, of course, I think that there's lots of anxieties in that. But I think that if you um, create something, then it's your right to to craft it in a certain way, to, to, to be set, like in a certain way opaque. And I think that's, with Plas Poetry, I think that people have spent so much time trying to erase that opaqueness and try and make her explainable. So they'll look at her poems and, and try and find a biographical detail that correlates to it. And actually, poetry is absolutely about, not just about, you know, confessional poetry as, as she's part of, it's about expressing your feelings and your story, absolutely, but it's on your own terms and with your own imagery and you can obscure as much as you want and not. And um, I definitely think that Dora gives me the opportunity to, and I think that publication and, you know, the process that Claire and I go through mm -hmm. allows me to do that in a very different way. So it's not just me stand, sitting here and, and, and talking about it, which I also think is a, an important part of it, but um, that I'm able to express it in a more creative way and a more, I guess, an engaging way, because mm. it has to be interesting for other people too. One of the things that I think's um, been striking in every edition of I and Dora so far is that um, <coughs> aesthetics are very important, you know, very important to you and to Claire. And I wonder if, you know, with this particular edition, whether there were certain, you know, what the, how the content and the material that you were dealing with, how that drove the aesthetic process, if there were particular choices that you made. Um, yeah, we uh, the first edition that we did was, um, I guess, quite pretty and it was very detailed. And I remember Claire talking about it as kind of like a, kind of like a little box that you might have with all your personal objects in it. Um, and because we were dealing with something much colder and um, harder to engage with, and because we didn't have as much material, and I didn't, you know, if you're talking about something like this, I think actually the less detail you you give the the better perhaps because it's just a difficult thing to engage with um, so yeah we tried to strip it down and and, and make it much more um, I guess colder and more official but there were obviously as you said aesthetics are important to us so we thought about you know things in um, her poetry that's a very simple idea that we could use and um, that simple idea became the red and the blue, mm. um, because there's um, one of the poems that I really loved when I was 15 was a poem called Tulips, which mm. um, is all about Plath being in hospital and feeling really helpless and depressed and abs absolutely just helpless. Um, and that colour always stayed with me. And also um, Ted Hughes, just before, when he wrote... Um, published Birthdayless as one of like, my favourite poems in that volume, it's called Red, um, and the last line of that poem is, but the jewel you lo lost was blue, so he talks a lot about how Red was completely about her depression and her anger, um, but you know, kind of what the world lost was th this blue, which mm. was her will to live, I guess, and you know, that life force that perhaps wasn't about that anger. So that kind of became the basis of it. 
You mentioned that period that she was writing about when she was, you know, very helpless and in a sense, I guess, um, out of control. One of the things you and I were talking about yesterday, and you've included it in the program note, is that quote from Plath about the desirability of being able to control and manipulate experiences, even the most terrifying, so even kind of madness, the idea that that's, you know, something that she felt could be manipulated or controlled. Um, I wonder what you think about that, whether you think it's um, desirable or even possible to have that level of control. I'm not sure that it is possible, but I definitely think <coughs> that it's a desire that you have when you feel out of control. Um, and so in that sense, yes, I have felt a desire to control those emotions as I know that other people do as well. And I think that, that her creative process was was part of that and whether it is necessarily control or it's about a ma management of it or a containing of it mm. um, I don't know um, but I guess in terms of Dora um, it's about communication so, and I think that's when you feel out of control it's often that you cannot express what that lack of control is about mm. you know um, <coughs> And it's finding a way to communicate it and I guess, yeah, contain it, which I think is the sort of force and the driving force and whether that can actually happen, I don't know. Mm. But that drive to do it is is a positive thing, I think, to, to try to contain something. Is it possibly a good thing, which you disagree about? Yeah, we, we have a slight difference of opinion about about that element of control. Certainly, you know, both its possibility and mm. its desirability and uh, you know for me it's it's you know the illusion of control is kind of part of the mm. chaos I suppose um, let's talk a little bit more about the about the films that you screened tonight and we've talked already and you mentioned it a little bit in your in your introduction about one of the kind of very striking things about Sandra Lahir's film is hearing Sylvia Plath's voice. Um, I'm quite curious to know who in the audience was watching uh, the Sandra Lahir Lady Lazarus for the first time. Can you just put your hand up if you hadn't seen it before? Okay. Personally, that's a source of huge pleasure that so many of you who you know have come to that for, for the first time tonight. Um, one of the things that struck me, and I and I don't know what you think about it. You know, again, we have talked quite a bit about the strength of. Sylvia Plath's voice, one of the things that I was thinking watching it again tonight and was kind of writing a note was, yes, you know, Plath's voice is very strong, but for me, one of the things that's really pleasing about the film is that, you know, in the film gives Plath a voice. Often she's submerged by, you know, other things and by the mythology around her. But one of the things I really liked about this film watching it again was actually that Sandra Lahir is not submerged by Plath, that her kind of images and the poetry and the texture of those images and the structuring of the film, they're really kind of holding their own. And there's something about the kind of the interweaving of these, inc these two incredibly strong female creative voices, I think, that, that I, <coughs> uh, almost seeing it in this context, I was kind of struck by new. I, I mean, I don't know about, in terms of the aesthetics, how that spoke to you. Um, 
I think was struck by um, just how subtle, um, how respectful the identification with her was, I guess. Mm. Um, that, and the power of, you know, kind of, if she just kept her voice and didn't have her voice, which is what she did, but that she brought her visual language to it. Mm. And that very compliment, you know, absolutely complimented her. I mean, it, in my introduction, I sort of said the thesis that, that, that kind of she was working on about the visual landscape of her, her poetry and the kind of how interested she was in that and things. And um, it's a different, it's like working on a different language. It's like she was speaking, but just through the images. And um, kind of, yeah, I, th I thought that, I was really struck by how respectful it was when I saw it again just now, actually, mm. that she wasn't swallowed up by her. Mm. Um, and I think that's often what people think. If, if you like poetry like that, if you like women that way, you know, if you like those types of women or you're interested in those types of themes, that somehow you're t taken over by this thing and you're going to be consumed by death. But actually, you know, kind of, sh she looked at these things with her rather than became swallowed up. Yeah, and there's something very pleasing about being able to look at death in a whole range of ways. You know, death is is terrifying and sometimes tragic, but it's also banal and mundane sometimes and funny at others. And, and yes, of course, poetic, but mm. mostly not. Um, I think it's a bold thing to put that together with Mad Men <laughs> and you know I assume that you didn't program them together just because they both happened called to Lady be Lazarus. called Lady Lazarus. <laughs> Lazarus. Can you say it, what it was with the kind of Mad Men piece that really resonated with you? I know you again you mentioned it briefly in the introduction but tell us a little bit more about that. I think there's something about Mad Men that's always reminded me of Plath. It's the, the female <coughs> characters in there always kind of remind me of certain versions of Esther in the Bell Jar. I think it's like kind of, um, you know, young girls lost in the city and kind of there's a lot of a lot of young women that not sure what they feel about the men that they're kind of put together with and not sure about the decisions that they're making about their lives and things. So it was kind of, it kind of I was really fascinated when I knew that um, Matthew Weiner had written um, an episode that was called Lady, Lady Lazarus um, and I think that in that episode particularly the character of Beth is absolutely the epitome of like this romantic um, damaged woman which I think is also a very strong image when people think about Plath mm especially for a young girl, I think mm. that's what you think. Mm. Um, that, you know, she was betrayed by her husband and she was put in this cage and she was an artist mm. and she wasn't allowed to express herself. And that's kind of the, the basis that I think that Beth is created out of that sort of mould. Mm. But then there's all these other things in there as well which kind of make you question, question that. It's kind of, you know, I've written about it in, in my notes, but you know, kind of as you just said, like the banal idea of death. So, you know, Pete at the beginning discussing his, you know, insurance policy and mm. facing death that way. And um, Don just looking down an elevator shaft yeah. and being really, really confused and, you know, kind of not really understanding what that would mean if he'd fallen down there. What does that mean? And, and then, you know, right at the end with Megan, 
you know, that sort of smile on her face as she's like lying pretending to be dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the, the, the Beatles song as well, which is kind of about this trans- transcendental death and, you know, kind of, again, this romantic idea of it. So I thought there was like a lot more in there and I thought that it was a very interesting way to, to think about the different facets and the different identification and the different projections of Plath that there are. Yes, Don, even more terrified by the Beatles than he was by the prospect <laughs> of falling down was. a damage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I don't know Mad Men. I haven't followed the series, as you know, so it was, it was fascinating for me to, to look at it for tonight. Um, I mean, I wonder how much of what you're talking about is, you know, is... It's not that it's just about the time when it's set, but obviously there is something about you know that period in American history and the freedom that that brought with it, and you know the relationship between kind of too much freedom and a sort of collective existential crisis, if you like. I don't know if that's something that's that's there kind of throughout the series. Obviously, you you've picked on this particular episode, but do you think that's something that that the series is dealing with more generally? Yeah, I think that I I, I do feel that the the series does deal with that generally. I think especially that season. And I don't know if everyone's seen the whole of it, but there's like all these signifiers of death all through this season, and um, people also people coming to terms with how they're supposed to live their lives in a Kind of, you know, this uh, this conversation that Don and, and Roger have about, you know, deciding how to live your life, and this is for the first time that they've they've had to experience this because really you just do your job, mm. you do you'd, you'd marry the husband that you had and you wouldn't divorce them, and you know there's this period of change, um, but I feel like that's talked about all the time. I feel like mm. that's spoken about about our generation, and it'll probably be spoken about the next. Mm. There'll always be this idea of being uncomfortable about choice and actually just being uncomfortable about your being able to control your life mm. that there is a choice or that there feels that there is too big a choice about mm. your life and where you steer it so mm. I think in that sense yes there, there were historical things that were happening in Mad Men but there is something really kind of that, that goes across and is mm. relatable throughout so although Mad Men doesn't have the you know the, the sort of texture and the layering that Sandra Lahir's film does, it does arguably have, you know, lots of, I mean, it has texture in the sense that his, it has different points of entry because your, your reading of it is a very rich reading, you know, based on your own personal mm. response to it. You know, I'm sure there are people who watch it and just love the soft furnishings <laughs> and the costumes. Absolutely, Jessica's outfit, um, Megan's outfits and yes. things like that. Um, yeah, absolutely, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so popular and that even people that think that nothing ever happens in Mad Men can still engage with it mm. on that level. It's interesting that you drew a, a sort of... Um, you made a point of reference between the character of Beth and Sylvia Plath, and for me, one of the most fascinating and actually kind of troubling parts of this episode of Mad Men is the character of Beth because she is so much the you know seductive broken woman and actually I you know she I just kept thinking of kind of Francis Farmer and a whole series of other women who who kind of fall within that um 
archetype, I suppose. I hadn't, I hadn't made that, you know, I hadn't made such a link with Plath because uh, I suppose for me there's a way in which <coughs> Beth still and her character may change, but in this she feels very, she feels like the kind of safe face of the kind of broken, fragile woman, and she's very beautiful, and she's not, you know, she is quite um, reactive, I suppose. Whereas with Kath, I always feel that, that, that she, you know, she, she's, even when she's being controlled, she's, almost, she's always about to kind of burst out of it. I suppose what I'm saying is she seems, the mythology of her is as much madder mm. than Beth. And that's not so seductive. I think um, I wrote about this in my notes. I think what my identification with her, with Plath, or it's it's more like Esther in in the Bell Jar that I think of Beth as. I think, and Esther in the Bell Jar is Sylvia, Sylvia Plath's younger self, or it, you know, if if you want to decide that she's anything to do with Plath, but. Um, and it's kind of about that helplessness. It, you know, think about like reading Tulips when I was 15 and kind of really being um, so like seduced by how helpless this person was. And then mm -hmm. I read Lady Lazarus, you know, kind of at the age that I am now, at the same age that she wrote it. Yeah. And I see a woman that's really trying to speak. Um, and I think of, you know, I think Beth in that episode of Mad Men is a girl. She's mm. she's a helpless child, and that's kind of why Pete likes her mm. because he feels he can, you know, and you know the kind of shock that he feels when she says no mm. is the same shock you'd have the first time your child said no to you, you know, kind of. Yeah. There's something about that which is very alluring, I think, because it's controllable. And she looks very doll-like, and she looks very fragile, and. You know, it's actually, I, I was surprised, you know, when there was reference to her having children of her own, mm. because like you say, she's very, she's very childlike. Um, I'm mindful that we are almost out of time. I just wondered what thoughts you were left with now after this process of kind of working through your own material and your responses in relation to Plath and her cultural legacy, I guess. Um, I think that. Um, I hope that I hope that we can show that it's much richer than um, kind of more popular um, ideas about her. And I also I also really have realised just I think it seems strange because Dora's so much about um, very popular female um, characters and we use them on the blog and things like that and. I always use just one quote, which seems to simplify them so much. Um, but I really, the, the film really did stay with me in Sandra Lear's film in terms of the respect that she gave to to, to, to Pat, and I think that's really what I've been left with is that um, identifying with a woman is a really powerful thing, and especially with these women that um, have been through things that are really difficult. But that there's a respect to their stories, and that there's they are they are them still, and I am me, and there's a separation. And even though they might help me to talk about certain things, and and that's a really really great thing, and it might help me to be less scared about certain things, 
Um, and it's really important that they're understood as themselves as well. And I don't mean in a biographical way, in just in a respect for a human being way. Thank you. We decided to, to have a conversation rather than um, open it up as a Q&A because, you know, this is the third edition of I Am Dora and it seemed time really for Gemma to have some space about what, you know, she's trying to do and how she works with Claire and what the process is. So if anyone had things that they were hoping to say in this forum, apologies if we haven't given you the chance for that, but we felt that, you know, it was important to have the conversation. Um, before we finish, the other thing that I would say is, obviously, um, you know, Sylvia Plath does <coughs> evoke very strong feelings sometimes in people and some of the material that we've looked at too. Um, we have, if anyone does feel very kind of troubled, there are phone numbers on the way out of organisations that you can ring and people that you can talk to. Um, it's a rather sombre note to end on, but you know, but the evening itself has been much more um, kind of celebratory, I think, of Plath and the legacy, and also a good way of celebrating I Am Dora. Thank you for coming and thank you to Jane.